morning, and they are the story of two different caretakers. First of all, this one. We got this flower back in the spring, and I kid you not, it was about this tall and not much wider than this, real small. And my wife, who's one of her hobbies is gardening, she loves to garden, she has worked on this and worked on this and watered it tenaciously all summer, particularly in the hot stretches we've had, and you can see with the results of her energy, care, attention, etc. If you go sit on the porch of the parsonage, you're going to feel like you're in a greenhouse because there's just flowers all around that because that's one of her hobbies, and she just works on it all the time. Now, if you look over at this flower here, this is the one that's in my office. And you can tell who's taking care of this one and how well it is going. It has many wonderful features to it. Some of the uh, leaves droop extremely well. And then I have managed not only to produce green leaves, but I have very beautiful brown leaves here that I've managed to produce uh, that shrivel up, uh, etc. And uh, in a few more days, if I don't water it, it will begin to put out a very nice aroma uh, in my office that will make sure that nobody that comes to my office stays for very long uh, when they smell it, etc. So uh, this, is, this is me. I don't only have the brown thumb. I got the black thumb, the destroy every plant you get close to thumb, etc., uh, etc. Et I don't believe that you should water a plant until it is screaming that it needs water. And then when it's really drooping and giving out, then, uh, then you begin to give it attention. My wife, on the other hand, she waters all of her stuff almost twice a day, puts lots of time and energy. So you can sort of see the difference between her work and my work, okay? Good thing the Lord didn't call me to be a horticulturalist. It'll be a disaster uh, in the making or a farmer for that matter. Our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is illustrated by the story of these two plants. The more time, energy, and attention we place on developing and growing our love and devotion to Him, this is what it's going to be the result. And when we put no time or energy into it, this is going to be the result. I want you to look at this plant. The brown leaf, the drooping leaves, the whole bit, didn't happen because I intentionally tried to make it happen. It just happened because I neglected it. I tend not to do anything with it till I see it drooping. This is the way this one is because my wife is tenacious about getting out there and watering this plant. She makes sure it gets water and attention every day. I see to it that this gets water and attention about one to every two months, whether it needs it or not. And in our walk with the Lord, if we just neglect our walk with God, that's going to be the result. If we are intentional about focusing on the Lord, this is going to be the result. All it takes for this to happen is just simple neglect. What it requires for this to happen is attention, energy, and focus. Now, you're turning your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. The author here is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he is closing out his letter to the church at Ephesus. And as Paul often likes to do when he closes a letter... He identifies a person or persons that are very, very close with him 
And then he gives them what we would call a benediction, a final farewell and a final word from the Lord as he basically backs away and he says goodbye. We saw a few weeks ago that the name that he mentions is a guy by the name of Tychius. Tychius, he refers to as a beloved brother in the Lord, a guy that he was really close to. They had shared so much together with, been with Paul on his third missionary journey. We believe that Tychius was given the responsibility to take the letter of, of Ephesians from a Roman prison where Paul was at the time he wrote the book of Ephesians to uh, the church and to the believers that were there in Ephesus. Now, as Paul moves towards the conclusion of this letter, he will say to them, peace be with the brothers, since that closeness that they've got, and the idea of peace is wholeness and wellness, peace be with the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he wishes them three things. He wishes them peace, which is, again, that sense of wholeness, love with faith. Notice how he ties the two together, love with faith, and where is it? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the fact that the peace, the love, and the faith are coming from the presence and heart of God means that it will have longevity. Anything that God does continues and stays. It will have longevity and it will have depth to it. It isn't, you know, cross the skim top. It will have depth to it. And then he moves to this closing out benediction with them. Grace be with all of you, verse 24. Grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Now, my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin, and I invite you, if you will, to follow along with me. Grace be with all who do what? Who love our Lord Jesus Christ, and how do you love him? With a love that is incorruptible. Now, what I want us to do is do what I call sort of back walk through this verse because he begins with a promise. He says those who will get the promise, the promise is you're going to have the grace of God. Who are those who are going to have the grace of God? Those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. And then how are you going to love him? You're going to love him with a love that is incorruptible. Now, if we're going to love the Lord with a love that is incorruptible, if we're going to experience and know the grace of God in our lives, and we'll talk in a few moments about what the grace of God is, then what we've got to choose to do is we've got to choose to, to have a focus. And the focus is the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus of our love determines the reward of our love, and the focus of our love determines the strength of the love itself. In other words, if Jesus is the focus of our lives, then we experience His grace. If Jesus is the focus of our lives, then we will begin to move with the love of God. If He's not the focus, then we're in trouble. So let's look at what it means. He says, first of all, who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in that verse the use of the first person plural possessive pronoun, who love our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, it is a possessive. They are our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like Jesus is sitting over there or he's grandma's Lord or he's daddy's Lord or whatever. He is our Lord. There's a sense that I am vitally connected to him, our Lord Jesus Christ. Note it is, it is plural. He is saying that we together as the body of Christ, we together as the church love him. You see, we love him best and we love him strongest when we love him together. 
We place a lot of emphasis in Western culture and particularly in the United States on individualism and, and, and being an individual and doing things individually. And we talk about, I love the Lord. But Paul doesn't so much have that idea of, I love the Lord. He carries more the idea of we together love the Lord. In the ancient uh, Oriental culture, as is today, they didn't think as much along the lines of being individualist as they thought along the lines of being a group. And so what Paul is saying is together we are loving Jesus. You see, if I want to grow my personal love for Jesus, the more I love him as the body of Christ, with the body of Christ, the more I connect with my brothers and sisters in Jesus, and together we love the Lord, then my love for him individually is going to grow stronger as our love together for Jesus grows stronger. So we love who? We love our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice the term, the Lord Jesus Christ. We tend to use the term Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus Christ and we get so used to using it, we don't really pay a whole lot of attention sometimes to what we're saying. But every one of those designations for him is packed and flowing over with meaning. The first of all, the word Lord. In the earliest confessions of the Christians, they would say, Jesus is Lord. Now, for us, that may not, I mean, that sounds like a great thing to say. But in the early church... Growing up, living in the midst of the Roman Empire, these early Christians heard the constant confession, Caesar is Lord. And when you said Jesus is Lord, you were making a political statement, not just a spiritual or religious statement, and you were contradicting and opposing and affronting the power of the Roman Empire, which ruled the known world at that time. And when Christians said Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, and when they refused to say Caesar is Lord, instead Jesus is Lord, they were literally putting their lives on the line. They know, knew that they might be killed for saying Jesus is Lord. So when Paul says we love who our Lord Jesus Christ, he is confessing the lordship of Christ, and in so doing, he is not confessing the lordship of Caesar, which puts him on a collision course and puts the church at Ephesus on a collision course with the Roman Empire. Who do we love? We love our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the only Lord that we love. Now, the word Lord in the ancient world spoke of one who was superior. Jesus is superior in who he is, and Jesus is superior in who he is in my life. So he is superior in who he is, and because he is superior in who he is, he then takes a place of superiority, top position of authority in my life. The term Lord in those days was a term of respect. When you address someone as Lord, you were saying you respected them. The term Lord spoke of master and owner. So when, again, you use the term Lord, often you were saying to someone, you're my master, you're my owner, I give you tremendous respect for who you are. So when I refer to him as I Lord Jesus Christ, what I am saying to Jesus is, you're my owner. Bible says we are bought by the blood of Christ. You are my master. You call the shots. You run the show in my life. And you are the one that gets ultimate respect from my life. Let's look at the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that commands this respect. That means he's our Lord. He's our master. First of all, Jesus has universal authority. 
How do we know that Jesus has universal authority? Because the tomb in Jerusalem where they put him in is empty, and it's been empty for over 2,000 years. When Jesus walked out of that tomb and he resurrected, he demonstrated his authority. His authority over death, his authority over the grave, his authority over Satan, his authority over everything that had opposed his authority. The resurrection tells us that he's superior. The resurrection tells us that his superiority, his authority is ultimate. Second, his authority is sovereign. What we mean by that is he's at work in this present world, and he's at work determining the future that we're going to walk into. Now, often his sovereignty is difficult for us to discern. We ask the question a lot of times, why did God allow this? Why is God doing this? But he is working on an eternal time frame. His sovereignty means that he's working at his will, not in terms of the next 24 hours or even the next 24 years, but in terms of eternity. His authority is sovereign. Third, his authority is personal. And what we mean by that is what I said earlier. Jesus, as Lord, is my Lord. He is Lord in my life. He is, needs to be Lord of every aspect of my life. As I grow in my love of Him, more and more parts of my life come underneath His authority. Next, His authority is pervasive. I live under His authority. We live through His authority. We live in his authority. And his authority finally is an ultimate authority. He is going to come again, and when he comes again, his authority will be unquestioned. The Bible says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so his authority is ultimate. That is the idea of the, his authority and what it means for him to be Lord. Now, next it says, our Lord Jesus Christ. The term Jesus, or the name Jesus, is his personal name. And it comes from the Hebrew word Joshua, which means Savior. Or we could also say Deliverer. And so when I say his name, Jesus, what I am loving about him is that he's my Savior. What I am loving about him is that he's my Deliverer. And there's a catch to that i got to realize that I need a Savior. I need to be saved from something. I need to realize that I need to be a deliverer, be delivered. He's the deliverer, and he has the power to deliver me. So when I say, Jesus, I love you, I am saying, Jesus, I need you to do for me, and I have needed you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And that is, I need you to save me. I need you to save me from the power and the authority and the dominion of sin in my life. I need you to save me from myself because left to myself, I'm going to mess it up and screw it up. So I need you to save me from myself. I need you to save me from forces around in my life that are bent on destroying me. Lord Jesus, I need you to save me. I need you to deliver me. Now, deliverance implies that I'm leaving something over here to be set free because I'm being delivered to something. Jesus doesn't just deliver me from sin. He delivers me to himself. He doesn't just take me out of the power of sin over here. He places me under the authority of his power over here. So when I love Jesus, I am loving Jesus from the power of whatever I've been held in bondage to, to be held in his power, under his control, and in his and under his authority. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior and our Deliverer. And then it says that he is Christ. Now, Christ is not his last name. 
A lot of times people think, you know, you know, everybody's got a last name, so that Christ is Jesus' last name. Back in the ancient world at that time, they didn't have last names. Your, your last name was sort of where you were from. In other words, you'd be so-and-so of Franklin County or so-and-so of Rocky Mount. You didn't have a last name. So that Christ is not his last name. The term Christ speaks of him as the Messiah. And the term Messiah means he is the anointed one of God. There are two basic ideas I want you to take home about the term Christ. First of all, it is the idea of Jesus being anointed or being empowered. What does it mean for Jesus to be anointed or empowered? It means that all the glory of God, the holiness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, I mean, you name it, everything that God is, is in Jesus Christ. That's what it means for him to be divine. That's what it means for him to be the Son of God. Everything is in him. I have a son whose name is Jonathan. Jonathan has got my DNA in him. Jonathan has also got a lot of my emotional and psychological characteristics in him. That's not necessarily his advantage, but anyway, he's still got a lot of those characteristics in him. The idea of Jesus being the Son of God is that he has got divine DNA in him. He has got the characteristics of Almighty God in him. That is the idea of him being the Son of God. So the idea of him being Christ is that he is empowered to be who he is as the Messiah. All of who God is poured into him. So who am I loving when I love Jesus? I'm loving the one who's the love of God, the power of God, the holiness of God, etc. I'm loving his mercy. I'm loving his holiness. I'm loving his power. I'm loving every his creativity. You name it. That's what I'm loving in who Jesus is. It is second, the idea that he is right beside us. The idea of Christ. Remember, Emmanuel, God with us. So who am I loving? I'm loving the one who's walking right beside me. I'm loving the one who's walking just ahead of me. What did Jesus say to people? Come, follow me. Think about that. He didn't say, go read a book about me. He didn't say, look up in the sky and try to get a clue as to where I'm floating around up there. When he said, come follow me, what he was saying is, I'm going to be with you. And you're, if you follow somebody, they're always in view. You can see them. You can hear them. You can get close to them. Come follow me. We're going to hang out together. You're going to take the journey of your life in a journey with me. Come follow me. So this idea of loving him is I'm loving the one who is close to my life, who's invited me to walk the journey of life with him. It's the idea of being close to him. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we do? He says we love the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to love Jesus? In our culture, we use love for everything. We will talk about loving our wife and loving pizza in the same breath. Have you ever thought about that? We talk about loving everything. We throw the word love around. I was with a teenager, not one of our kids here, I want to specify that. Well, I was with a teenager about a year or so ago, and he was doing this, putting this beautiful thing together, telling his girlfriend how much he loved her. And I looked at him, I said, what is love? And he said, you know, I never thought about that before. 
you know, we, we just use the term, but we don't think about it much. And usually when we do think about it, it, it involves emotions. In other words, I got butterflies in my stomach, you know, or I feel something towards somebody, etc. But that's not the idea here. What does it mean to love Jesus? It doesn't mean that we wait and look for nice feelings to well up inside of us about Jesus. It is the idea that we have a commitment to him that is fueled by him. A commitment, growing commitment to Jesus that is fueled by him. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your heart. And one of the ways I express my love for him is by being loyal to him. Now, I want us to look at John's Gospel, chapter 14, because Jesus gets up on our business here about what it means to love him. In John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 15, listen to his words. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He does not say, if you love me, you will have nice feelings about me. He doesn't say, if you love me, you're going to do certain things. He says, if you love me, you're going to do what? You're going to keep my commandments. So my obedience to him is an expression of my love for him. Over in the same chapter, verses 21 and 23, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that is, obeys them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, if you go down to verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will do what? Keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So Jesus keeps driving the point home. You guys want to love me, and I want you to love me, but how do you express that love? You keep my commandments. You live in obedience to me. Now, part of that means I choose to delight in him. That means my greatest joy is in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. My deepest satisfaction and fulfillment in life is found in loving Jesus, serving Jesus, walking with Jesus, and hanging out with the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this, is, this, this kind of love goes the distance. It's not about feelings. It is about going the distance with Jesus. It means when I face temptation, he is greater to me than the temptation is. You see, the believers he was writing to at Ephesus were living in a cesspool of temptation, and they had to make a daily choice. Am I going to go off into the temptation that's all around me, or am I going to love Jesus and serve Jesus and stay with him? And so when Paul says here, love the Lord Jesus Christ, they were having to make a choice every day. I'm not going to go the way of the temptation because I'm going to go the way with the Lord Jesus. Sticking with Jesus is hard work. It is difficult work, and it requires of us a determined commitment. But folks, the greatest deterrent to sin in our lives is a growing love for Jesus. The greatest deterrent for sin in our lives is a growing love for Jesus. So often what we think is the greatest deterrent for sin is being scared God's going to judge me. But if we use the, where we do with that is we think we can get away or we didn't, you know, we sin a little bit and God didn't seem to take us out. So we're going to sin a little bit more and see if God didn't take us out and we're going to sin a little bit. When we just keep pushing the envelope and seeing, you know, where does the judgment come? You ever do that with your parent? You know, I'll slip one cookie and see what they do and I'll slip two cookies and see what happens. And I'm going to slip three cookies and see what happens and see, just push that thing as far as I can until, you know, the parent comes down on me. We tend to do that game with sin. If God doesn't punish, if we're going to take it a little bit farther, et cetera, et cetera. But what is the greatest deterrent for sin in our life is not seeing how far I can go before the judgment of God comes in my life. It is saying, I'm going to just be in love with Jesus. 
I am going to focus on him. I don't care what sin's got, and as alluring as it is, it doesn't beat him. Can't get in the ballpark with who he is. I am going to choose to walk with him every day and serve him. And I'm going to choose to turn away from the sin because I am choosing to follow him. Now, notice the way he describes this love. He says that it is incorruptible. The idea of the word there is that it doesn't decay. Anything that decays, decays by neglect. That's all it takes for something to decay is neglect. Some of you uh, who've been here for a while recognize this house. That's right across the street from the church. And the time that we've been here, I watched that house be neglected, and the front porch was literally falling in. The windows looked like they were about to cave in. It was not that someone stood out there and desired for the house to fall to pieces. It was just neglect. There wasn't any maintenance going on. Then about six months ago, they started pouring money and time and energy into that house and it don't even look like the same place now because the neglect stopped. And folks, the, what, what eats away and decays our relationship with Jesus is not that we wake up one morning and say, Woo, I can't wait to go out and sin today. I'm going to sin my head off today. And tomorrow I'm going to get up and sin some more. I'm going to break every commandment ten times over today. It's not that we do that. It's that we... We just say, well, you know, I don't think I'll have my quiet time today, or I'm going to push my quiet time to the end of the day. And I really don't feel like praying today, so I'm not going to bother. And I really don't feel like going to church today, you know, it's just easy to take it off, not bother the church today. It's those little things that we just neglect, and we neglect, and we neglect. And the longer we neglect, the more the decay sets in, etc. When we got back from vacation... My wife's plants hadn't been watered for about a week, and it had been 95 degrees that week. It was back in July. And we rolled up in the driveway, and I looked at Helen, and I said, them plants hadn't been watered. And she took one look and freaked out. Uh, this thing was drooping all over the place. And my wife jumped out of the car, and the first thing she did was grab a water hose and go to town on these plants. What was she doing? She was reversing neglect. And you see... In our relationship with Jesus, we got to keep ordering it. We got to keep putting the time and effort and attention to it because it's just simply neglect that gets us in trouble. Staying with Him, walking with Him every day. Now, let me tell you where it gets tough. It gets tough when we got to love Him through the questions that we don't have answers for. It gets tough when He seems confusing and we get frustrated with Him. It gets tough when the temptation seems more gratifying than he seems gratifying. It gets tough when God seems silent. How many times have you been in a place in life that you said, Why isn't God speaking to me? And why is God silent? And it's tough to love him when God seems silent. And we have to choose to love him when we have to suffer for him. Your love for Jesus is going to get tested. In fact, the longer you walk with him, the more your love for him is going to be tested. It's like a muscle. The only way a muscle gets stronger is when pressure is put against that muscle. I was watching last night uh, the Florida State game 
and they did an interview with a quarterback for Florida State. Fascinating story. That young man had his leg just torn all to pieces, and he was told by the medical trainers in the hospital, and they had a picture of him when he was in the hospital, he would never play football again. He would be lucky if he could even walk again. And he asked the trainers, he said, and the doctors, he said, what chance do I have to play football again? And they said, well, next to none. And his response was, well, you just told me I do have a chance. I just do have a chance. And they followed the story of his rehabilitation, which was fueled by his determination to get back on the field. And last night, I was amazed watching him run back and forth on that field with a brace on his leg throwing that football. Why? Because he loved the game of football and playing the game of football so much that he was determined and the pressure placed against his desire and his love for the game caused him to work his head off to rebuild his leg. Folks, with us... We have to choose when the pressure is on not to love Jesus and to serve him, to walk with him, to say, now I'm going to really make the decision to love him and follow him and serve him. The easiest place in my life to serve Jesus was when I was a teenage boy and I walked an aisle at a church and committed myself to Christ. Everybody celebrated that. But when there's been so much temptation at times to want to give up, to want to walk away, to fall into temptation, etc., that's when the pressure is on, and that's where the muscle of our love for Him is going to be tested. And we have to choose as to whether that muscle is going to grow or not. Now look at the reward that He says. He says, you're going to know my grace. Grace be with all of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. What is this grace of God? Let me say this. First of all, there's a saving grace. Saving grace is the grace God uses to save us. But saving grace is just the start, okay? That kickstarts us. What I call living grace is what he's talking about here. This is the grace that God gives us to love him. You listen to me and you say, how in the world can I love Jesus like you're talking about? He will give you the love to love him back with. He will give you the love to love him back with. What is his grace? His grace is his power in action. It is his activity. Grace is not some nice ethereal idea floating out here. The grace of God is the power of God, the activity of God, the provision of God, the protection of God, and it is the favor of God. It is God looking at us and saying, because you are choosing to follow me, because you are choosing to serve me, because you are choosing to stick it out when it's tough to stick it out with me, I am going to release in you and pour into you my glory, my holiness, my power, and whatever else it is you need to keep on going. I'm going to work around you, and working around you, I am going to shift circumstances and situations and do what I've got to do to work around you in order for my power and my glory to be at work. Notice, going back to John's Gospel, chapter 14, what Jesus says here about those who love him. He says in verse 21 of John 14, I, You will be loved by my Father. It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be what? Loved by my Father. So the first aspect of the grace of God is that we know the love of the Father for us. Not just in him saying it, but we experience his love in us. Secondly, he says, I will love him. Jesus is saying, I'm going to love you. Now, I, let me go back to my father-son illustration. 
When I say that I love Jonathan, I don't mean that I love Jonathan from a distance. I don't believe I love Jonathan with some, my son in some kind of theoretical sense. When I say I love my son, it means I call him on the phone. It means we text. It means we stay in touch with each other. It means I check his Instagram page to figure out what's going on with him. And Lord knows with me in social media, if I'm checking an Instagram page, I'm committed. And, and somehow or another, every time I check my son's Instagram page, I end up on somebody else's Instagram page. I have never figured out how I do that. When I'm sitting there hitting that thing as hard as I can, and I'm learning all about other people I really don't care to hear about learn about, trying to figure out what's going on with my son. But they all, all know the way I am with the computers. You'd understand that, uh, et cetera. But, you know, I, I try to stay in touch with him. When he was little, it was let's go fishing all the time, and et, et cetera. And, and then when he says here that, that God loves us, and we will be loved by the Father, and Jesus says, and I'm going to love you. It's this idea that he stays in touch with our lives. He, he checks out our Instagram page. He knows what's going on in our social media life. He knows what's going on with us, and he's committed to us, and he's right there. And he says, I'm going to love him. And then notice that last sentence. He says, and I will manifest myself to him. And man, I could preach a whole sermon on that, which don't get nervous. I'm not going to do that. But with the word manifest there is a fascinating Greek word. It means to make something clear. To make something clear. And what Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to make myself clear to you. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to make myself clear to you. You're going to really get to see and experience my holiness, my love, my glory, the essence of who I am. I'm going to manifest. I'm going to make myself clear to you. Then he goes on from there, verse 23. He says, we will come to that person who loves us. And notice, we will make our home with him. I'm going to move into your neighborhood. I'm going to move into your home. If you think of somebody being home with him, it means you're comfortable with them. They are there. I'm going to Make our home with them. When I used to do mission trips in Venezuela, the missionaries warned us. They said, do not say to the folks here, my house is your house. Because what Americans are thinking is, if you want to come visit, come for a few days. In Venezuelan culture, what that means is you got the right to move in. He said, we had some folks from Texas that came to visit. And they said, oh, our house is your house. Because the Venezuelans say that, and they mean that. Come right on in. So these Texans said, hey, our house is your house. And they felt really, you know, we Southerners, we make promises all the time. We don't have any intention of keeping. And, uh, you know, I would tell somebody, come to visit me. It doesn't mean I want you to come visit me. It just means I said something nice. You show up my front door, I'm going to be, you know, oh, my Lord, you're here, you know, et cetera. But so they, they came over there and they said, uh, you know, come visit us. Our house is your house. About a month or two later, after they got back to Texas, they got a phone call. Hey, y'all remember us from Venezuela? Yeah, we're at the airport. What airport? We're at the airport here. I think it was like in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We've flown in. We come to visit you. We come to stay with you. And they sort of drive, you know, oh, my gracious. And sure enough, they came. They stayed with them for several months. And it was, you know, doing the laundry and cooking and feeding the whole bit. And they found out what my house in your house really means. When he says here, I will make my home with them, he's saying, your life is my life. Your home is my home. Your journey is my journey. Your struggles are my struggles. Your fear is my fear. Your loneliness is my loneliness. 
Your struggle with temptation is my struggle with temptation. Your loss is my loss. And how does that pan out? Gosh, there's so many ways it pans out. When you walk from that cemetery, he walks with you out of the cemetery. You may walk out of there saying, I don't know what the rest of my life is going to carry, but you'll know this, he is part of the rest of my life. When you get the diagnosis that you had hoped you weren't going to get, he's right there with you. And he's going to walk with you every step of the way. When you and I face things in life, things that we want to accomplish, and we say, man, I don't know how I'm going to accomplish it. He's saying, I'm right there with you. And he says, I've got a purpose for your life. I've got a journey for your life. Because I'm going to be at home with you in your life. Your life is my life. My Father and I will love you and we will come to you and we will make our home with you. And how do we respond to that? We just love him. We just love him. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for loving us. And thank you for the promise where you said you would come to us and you would make your home with us. That's grace, Lord. That is grace. And Father, we want to ask this morning that, Lord, wherever we are in life that we feel detached, lonely, out there by ourselves, that we would hear those words. Lord, when we love you, you say, I'm going to come to you. And I'm going to make my home with you. So you're not in that place by yourself. You're not in that struggle in your own energy. I'm there with you. Lord, you said you would never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, help us to know and to live in what it means for you to be at home with us. Lord, not just on the tough days, but Lord, every day you are with us. I want to ask you to do something right now in prayer, just between you you and the Lord. I want to encourage you to ask the Lord, God, in whatever part of your life right now you really need to know his presence, to just say, Jesus, help me to know in that place what it is for you to be at home with me. Jesus, we want to say to you in that place that we really need and want to know that you're at home with us. We want to say to you that, Lord, from that place, maybe a place of struggle, confusion, frustration, whatever, we want to say from that place that we love you. And, God, we also want to say to you that from the places where we have success and life's coming together and things are moving the way we'd hoped they were, our dreams are coming true, we want to love you from that place also. And part of loving him is saying to him for the first time, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my Lord. I want to know you. I want to follow you. I want to be at home with you and you at home with me.
And if you've never made that decision, I want to encourage you today to say to him, Jesus, I want to be at home with you. I want you to be at home with me. So I choose today to follow you. In just a few seconds here in this room, we will sing. And I invite you, if you've decided to follow the Lord Jesus today, if you need prayer or whatever, feel free to come forward. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you. And those of you that are, are listening either by radio or on our campus, we want to encourage you where you are, there at home or wherever, just to reach out to our Lord. And know him in the home where you are. Father, we praise you in your name.